Good afternoon. Today is Monday, the 30th of October, 2023, just, well, a little bit after one o'clock. And uh, welcome to UK Coral News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, uh, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border, and uh, Mark Anderson joining us from the United States. Uh, David, let's get started with uh, Israel. Yeah, so we've got here is a, a, an update on where things are from Sky News. Um, Israel-Hamas war, Israel military operations in Gaza, quote, will escalate, the IDF warns. So the full ground invasion has not yet happened, but uh, it's ramping up all the time. Uh, IDF spokesman said that his troops are prepared for any scenario and uh, that they, the uh, conflict would escalate. Quote, our activities and operations will continue to escalate according to the stages of war. Not clear on what that means, but there we go. That was a statement. Uh, this uh, this is an expanded ground operation into the strip. Ground forces, tanks, infantry forces, armored core forces are moving towards the terrorists. The terrorists are grouped together in certain areas to try and target our forces, and we attack them from the air. That's how we managed to assault and target twenty terrorists. Uh, there's direct contact ongoing between the forces in the Gaza Strip uh, and the terrorists. Fighting is ongoing. Um, so that's the situation where the war's at. Total casualties at the moment were 1,400 or 2,000 Israelis. The last I saw the death toll in Gaza was some 8,000, most of those being civilians. You see, they're men mentioning 20 terrorists, they're not mentioning thousands of terrorists. Uh, UN medical staff have said that airstrikes are getting closer to the hospitals. Uh, and according to UN figures, uh, 117,000, 117,000 displaced per persons are staying in hospitals alongside patients and staff, uh, sheltering from the ongoing violence. Uh, there's no progress on the 239 hostages being held by Hamas. Uh, now, just before we go on to response to all of this, a couple of things I'd like to raise. Uh, firstly, the, the Israeli war cabinet has been organized. It's tiny, it's three people. It's, it's Bibi Netanyahu, it's Gallant, the defense secretary who I've already called for, he should be sacked for what he said, uh, and the former leader of the opposition. Three people, a tiny group. Uh, we had, I think, seven of a war cabinet during the Falklands, which is a smaller, um, a, a, a smaller campaign, a smaller war. Um, Eleven during the Second World War is a, is a war cabinet in the UK. It's a tiny number for to be, of people to be making these decisions. And, of course, one of them's BB and one of them's BB's sidekick. And this brings me to my second point, which is what's the, the narrative that's coming out from Bibi Netanyahu. Now, I've thought in these circumstances that the political role is to make absolutely and abundantly and totally clear the difference between civilian population of Gaza and Hamas terrorists who populated an atrocity. And, and to, to keep repeating this over and over. This is not what Bibi's doing. He's, he's quoting, he's saying this is going to be the second war of independence. So he's, he's actually quoting back to 1948, which the Arabs called the Nakba, the great disaster, when we know many Arabs were forcibly evicted from the, ground, from the, from the land. He's, we're going to have a second run of that, he's saying. It's the most inflammatory thing he could possibly say. And he's even quoting Amalek, he's even quoting Amalek at length um, to say this is essentially a war of extermination is the inference. So as a political leader, I would put it to you that, that, that Bibi Netanyahu is doing everything he shouldn't be doing. 
And within the War Cabinet, there's very little, if any, restraint or restra restriction upon him. Um, so this is very concerning. Gentlemen, before I move on, would you like to comment? Well, I, th I, think, you've, I think you've raised a key point, uh, David, because at the end of the day, when we're getting violence prosecuted around the world. It's often been a few people that have made the decisions. We've seen that here in UK. Um, we've had uh, uh, Tony Blair with his uh, little top team deciding that what they were going to do in Iraq was legal when many people were saying this is not legal, but those were all little, uh, th those were all big decisions taken in little rooms behind closed doors. So what's happening in Israel, I don't see as being unusual. Um, because we see it as a trait amongst uh, uh, Western US and Western leaders as well. And the point I would make on this, David, is why is he using this language? Why is he uh, feeling that he has the, the uh, underpinnings and the foundations? It's because he's been given those by our prime ministers, our presidents, uh, and our mainstream media, which generally is 100% pushing for this. So it's not a question of uh, any rights and wrongs here. This is... To my mind, anyway, uh, a group of an, uh, uh, establishment figures in the UK, in the United States, in the EU, in politics and in media, banging war drums as hard as they can and encouraging this language. And this is one of my points from the outset of this, that nobody should be writing anybody any blank checks for atrocities. Um, not pulling Bibi Netanyahu up on this language um, in terms of the Western politicians. I think it's a great mistake, uh, even if they feel that they must support Israel because of what happened on, on, on uh, the 7th of October. Th they have to say something about this because this is, this is entirely the wrong mindset. This is a mindset that only ends up in atrocities. And um, frankly, I think they should have marked his card long ago on, on this sort of language. Um, we, we come back to the UK. I've got a video here uh, which shows a protest. Now, I know many people will be going along to these protests and, and they will be viewing this as a peace protest. Another element, and I'm going to concentrate on the other element here because I think it's a threat. I'm not going to concentrate on it because I'm suggesting that's all there is. I, I appreciate that many people are going along because they want peace and they want a ceasefire. There's a big sign up in Glasgow on the side of a tenement, ceasefire now. This is the right policy. But there's something else happening on the streets, and we need to talk about that too. So we roll the video. I'll I'll explain what I mean. So Intifada, Intifada, Intifada is the chant. Um, now, I, 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 as you know, I've been traveling to Israel for many years. I've traveled during the second Intifada. I've got some idea of what it's about. Um, and it's about killing innocent people. And that's what they're chanting for. They might not know it. Probably most of the people shouting that don't. But I think it's, it's worth reminding people what Intifada actually means. Some 3,000 Palestinians died in Intifada, some 1,000 Israelis and it did nothing but harm. It only moved the situation backwards, all that loss of life, almost all of it, innocent life, and it made not one whit of benefit to anybody. And the key point I've got here, uh, 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 
extract from a um, Jerusalem-based um, child uh, protection uh, charity. Char char yes, a child protection charity. Yes, the Sabaro Restaurant Massacre. So this is a, a pizza restaurant. It's on the main thoroughfare. It's on the the junction of the Jaffa Road and King George Street, uh, and they report um, uh, that. Uh, it was entirely unguarded at the time. Sabaro restaurant was filled with patrons, most of them children and young mothers. Um, these were the preferred targets of the barbarians of Hamas and the allies. Fifteen people were murdered that day, most of them children, including Mal uh, Roth, uh, Malky Roth. One uh, remains unconscious at the time this was written. Uh, more than a decade later, some 130, including passers-by, were injured. It was a horrendous attack. It was one of many. As I say, there was... 3,000 Palestinians killed, there was 1,000 Israelis killed, and it didn't do any good. The person who was in a coma actually only died this year. Um, so BBC was reporting on the 1st of June. Sabaro pizza bombing victim dies after 22 years in a coma. Uh, Chana and Nachenberg was 31 at the time of the time. Um, so that's what they're calling for, and that's what people are being fooled and tricked and manipulated into believing, and it's, 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 it's vile. Um, I think we should be pushing back at this. I don't think we should be fooled. I don't think we should be silent as people are being fooled. Uh, the next bit, I'll use a bit of comedy. Some people might have a problem with that, but I, I love using comedy when we're, when we're trying to puncture stupidity and error. Uh, the, at the end of that uh, chant, uh, you heard, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. I've been asking for three weeks now uh, what free Palestine means exactly. Um, and I've not got any answers from anybody. Uh, this satirical piece is the closest we've got to an answer. Anything you can give would be greatly appreciated. Of course, of course. Um, just one quick question. How do you define Palestine? Uh, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Absolutely, absolutely. And which, uh, which river is that? Well, it's next to Egypt, so one of those. Okay. Um, okay, so look, here's, here's Israel. Where? Just there. There? Mm. It's tiny. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so the river would be... The... this one. The Euphrates. OK, that takes up most of Iraq and Syria. Well, it's not that, then. No. Um, OK. The, oh, that's the River Jordan. Ah, the River Jordan. Yes, and the sea... Is the Mediterranean. Ah, yes, yes. So you want all of this area to be free. Yes. Of? Um... Israelis? Uh-huh. Including Israeli Arabs. No, 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 no. All right, so just non-Israeli Arabs. Yeah. So, Jews. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so you've got all these Jews, and what are you going to do with them? Um, good question. Um, maybe put them in America. America, yes, of course, land of the free. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Although, mm -hmm. I did once have a very nice time in Tel Aviv. Well, haven't we all? It was a big gay pride thing. A very handsome shag fest. So maybe uh, they can stay. Okay, so gay Jews can stay. Yes. Mm -hmm. Lesbians? Yes, stay. Bisexuals? Stay. And the trans? And the trans, yeah. of course. So, so I've got this right, broadly speaking. Mm -hmm. You want all of this area here to be free of heterosexual Jews. That sounds about right. So, this is it. That's the best we've got so far, but we're still looking for an answer. There are many people looking much more carefully at what these things actually mean, and getting at the truth of the matter, which is the underpinning problem, is one of hatred, hatred in the human heart, hatred for your fellow man, hatred for your neighbour. 
And that's what we need to be tackling. One of the people that was doing this is actually the mother of one of the people who have been kidnapped and is currently in Gaza. And she was speaking at the UN. Her name is Rachel Goldberg, and we've got a short clip. We came to find out what happened when the massacre that ultimately killed close to 300 at that music festival and more than 1,400 people total. When that massacre began, Hirsch, Honor, and 27 others managed to escape to a roadside bomb shelter and hid inside. Hamas militants came to the doorway and began throwing in hand grenades, which all witnesses with whom we have spoken said that Honor managed to pick up eight of them and throw them back out. But three of those hand grenades did get by and detonated inside. Next, Hamas fired into this small concrete room of 29 music lovers, an RPG, and then sprayed the room with machine gun fire. After a couple of moments of the dust settling, Hamas entered. Most of those young people were now dead. Some were alive and wounded and trapped under the dead bodies, so they pretended to be dead. It is from those witnesses that we know that Hirsch and two other young men were ordered to stand. And when Hirsch stood up, they all saw that his left arm had been blown off from the elbow. He had somehow managed to put on some sort of tourniquet or bandage and walked out with the other two young men. They were loaded onto a Hamas pickup truck and headed toward Gaza. Hirsch's last cell phone signal was found inside of Gaza at 10.25 in the morning on October, October 7th. Um, and uh, uh, Rachel went on to explain how um, a, a Bedouin um, man had tried to, to save all of these young people um, by, uh, by by talking to the terrorists and trying to trying to stop them um, doing this um, at, at his enormous peril. Um, and um, she finished uh, with this statement about the principles we should be applying. We human beings have been blessed with the gifts of intellect, creativity, insight, and perception. Why are we not using it to solve global conflicts all over the world? Because doing this is hard, and it takes fortitude, imagination, grit, risk, and hope. So instead, we opt for hatred, because hatred is so comfortable, so familiar, and so very, very easy. And on the subject of easy hatred, this takes us to Dagestan Airport. Uh, word went round on social media, Telegram, etc., that a flight was coming in from Tel Aviv and uh, a mob assembled to uh, hunt down the Jews on the plane. Um, and uh, we have some video. So you get an, an inkling. Uh, there are sixty of these uh, uh, these people were arrested. I don't think they actually managed to harm anyone. Not that I've found out so far. But you can see the potential and the threat was certainly there. 
Um, this is all the more reason why we should be speaking out for peace, we should be speaking out for calm, and we should be speaking out uh, to remind everyone that uh, we all share a common humanity and uh, compassion and love is what we should be building our society on, not hatred. Um, I'll finish here with uh, Dundee MP, um, SNP MP, went along to a rally which he thought was a, a peace rally. He was actually shouted down and heckled because essentially he had a view that Jewish lives and Palestinian lives are both important and we need to have a ceasefire in order to protect the innocent irrespective of which tribe or group they come from. This didn't go down well with the uh, protesters. Uh, we have a short clip of the reaction. Absolutely support a two-state solution. I'm absolutely appalled at what's going on. Do you, do you condemn the genocide in Gaza Strip? Do you condemn the genocide in Gaza Strip? I condemn all the indiscriminate actions in Gaza. And uh, in, in, in talking later, uh, Chris Law said that every death of an innocent in this conflict is a tragedy, uh, and amen to that. Uh, I finish here with a, a small clip. We might be able to show this in full in extra. A small clip of Hans Hermann Hopper, who was asked about the property rights issue, because it's often held to be a property rights issue. Now, this question came in a lecture. It was some years ago. Uh, it's before all of the events, so there's no heat in the discussion at this point. It's an academic discussion. But he was looking at what do you do when you're faced with an injustice and the fact that it's not always as straightforward as simply unwinding it because the world is not like that. Um, and uh, he was explaining uh, his view of this and the limitations on what can be done. Now, this would have to be carefully investigated. Now, my own investigations um, tell me uh, that um, most, most of the land that uh, Israel claims has been stolen from the Arabs. Um, they, have, uh, no claim to, they have no claim to it. They were just simply expelled. Um, it is a question whether that can be rectified right now. Uh, look, I have no, I have no doubt. For instance, uh, that uh, most uh, uh, millions of Germans have uh, property rights to land in Czechoslovakia or in Poland. Um, they can show titles that go back sometimes hundreds, hundreds of years, and they have not received it back. That's a matter of prudence. We, we, not, not all injustice can be rectified. And he goes on to say that it must, however, be recognised. And I think that some of that realism and calm needs to be brought into the situation that simply pointing to a previous injustice cannot be the excuse for the next horrific event. That applies to what's happening in Gaza today. It applies to what happened uh, in Israel on uh, the uh, 7th of October and to all the other uh, atrocities which might flow from this unless we can get some calm and unless we can get some peace and starting with the ceasefire. Okay, thank you, David. Uh, Mark, let's welcome you to the programme. Uh, and what's been going on uh, in Michigan? 
Yeah, of all places, East Michigan around Detroit, uh, lots of controversy. That's where a congresswoman represents the area who many see as off base on numerous issues, but she has been very strong in condemning the excesses of Israel's response to what happened, uh, among other things. Anyway, here's a headline from our friends at Associated Press. We'll be dissecting them a little more later. Democrats' divisions on Israel-Hamas war boil over in Michigan as Detroit area Muslims feel betrayed. Well, that picture there, the, the woman right next to the black man there is Governor Whitmer, Gretchen Whitmer, not very popular these days. And Dana Nessel, the uh, attorney general of Michigan, who happens to be Jewish, and they attended a pro-Jewish rally in Southfield, a heavily Jewish community in the orbit of Detroit, but they did not go to a similar thing put on by area Muslims, uh, the city of Dearborn being very notable here. Associated Press here, October 25, many of Michigan's top Democrats, including Governor Gretchen Whitmer, took part in a huge pro-Israel rally at a suburban Detroit synagogue days after Hamas' deadly attack on the country earlier this month, with some of them dancing and joining in chants of Am Yisrael Chai, Hebrew for the people of Israel live, None of them, the officials that is, attended a rally in nearby Dearborn the next day to show support for Palestinians in the Gaza Strip who were being killed or forced from their homes by the Israeli military's response. And Dearborn is the largest concentration of Muslims in the entire country, a very notable thing. The war between Israel and Hamas has inflamed tensions between Jews and Muslims around the world, including in the Detroit area home to several heavily Jewish suburbs, and Dearborn, as I noted, the city with the largest concentration of Arab Americans in the U.S., some of them Christian, not all Muslim. Uh, this strong show of support for Israel by Michigan's leading Democrats, however, has offended many of their Muslim supporters who are U.S. citizens, and this could affect how this key voting bloc votes next fall in this presidential battleground state. So this is having ripples in Michigan and national politics, a very interesting thing. And uh, a quick note on what David showed, the, the protests um, from the river to the sea, Palestine must be free. I've attended some of those and covered them in Washington, D.C. in recent years. And one of the things they say about free Palestine, and Governor Whitmer would have probably heard this had she attended the Arab rally, uh, the meaning of free Palestine is to get rid of what they call apartheid and get rid of the direct oppression of movement, the, the crackdown on freedom of movement, the crackdown on the accessibility of certain goods and services and things like that. I know that's part of the meaning and that, that doesn't explain the whole thing, but that what David showed kind of jarred my memory of some things I've covered in the past, but that's some of the ripples in the States so far, guys. Thank you. Okay, thank you for that, Mark. Um, well, I'd just like to come in with a bit of a focus back onto Gaza and what's what's been happening in Gaza. And this image, of course, really uh, shows us everything on the right, a little film clip of a strike coming in. But the damage here is largely done by very, very large airdropped US weapons. So um, somebody over the weekend sent me a little clip of a, a, a former American Green Beret, Special Forces uh, soldier, speaking about Gaza and speaking about casualties. Let's have a listen to what he says. Here's why I will not be reporting on civilian casualty numbers within the Gaza Strip. Now it's important to understand my background before we get into this. A few years ago, I retired from the United States Army Special Forces. 
prior to joining the Green Berets, I was also in the infantry. I fought against Islamic terror all across the Middle East to include ISIS, the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and many others. With all of that experience, I did learn one thing, and it was true across all of the different jihadist groups. They like to use civilians for cover, also known as human shields. They kidnap children and keep them close to them while they're emplacing rockets. They also set the rockets up outside of civilian structures, such as schools and hospitals. Even more so, the adult fighters within terrorist organizations also hide among the civilian population. I have seen them give fake weapons to very young children, hoping that one of us will shoot them. I've also seen them arm children with actual weapons, and Hamas is no different. These terrorist organizations are also known to strip weapons and equipment off of their fallen comrades and to post their bodies online saying that they were killed indiscriminately and that they are civilians. They do this for propaganda purposes. But something even more troubling about Hamas is they have training camps for kids about five years old and up where they teach them to go out, hunt, and kill Israelis. I do hours of research a day for my podcast, the Speak the Truth podcast with Rob. While doing that, I do come across lots and lots of dead children inside of the Gaza Strip. Breaks my heart when I see a five-year-old girl being carried off an ambulance missing half of her skull. It is very easy for people to get caught up in that and not look at the totality of the entire situation. And with such reporting coming out of Hamas, such as the hospital bombing where over 500 people were killed, they're just not a reliable source. So once a reliable source is found on the ground inside of Gaza to report the actual situation, I will not be reporting on those numbers. Because quite frankly, I don't trust the people that are there right now. And anybody that is reporting on those numbers has a very biased agenda or does not understand the situation. Well, that uh, little clip was sent to me. I've taken it on face value. I'm going to say I'm taking it on face value that the man is who he said he is with the experience. But I've got a lot of questions about what he says, because, of course, to be American special forces, he would have to absolutely believe in everything to do with the United States, the flag, democracy, law and order, law and order, world guardian. He would have to believe all of that to go out and do the job uh, he has done, which is to be a trained killing soldier for the United States. If he doesn't believe in the United States, then he went to become a specialist, special forces soldier in order to kill and that alone. So we need to think very hard about the background of that man and how he sees the world. But of course, the one thing he's not going to comment on is what involvement the US or UK or NATO or the EU had in creating the conflicts and the people uh, that he's then coming up against and criticizing. Uh, the other factor is I don't think anybody should be saying we're not going to talk about casualties involving particularly children on the scale that we're seeing in Gaza. And so I find his excuse that he doesn't want to get into this is, um, is wrong, absolutely wrong. There's another factor, and that is, of course, he knows through common sense and his military experience that heavy air-dropped bombs of the size that are being used on, on Gaza and civilians will cause huge damage. You only have to look at film clips of troops operating in uh, Iraq or Afghanistan, including special forces troops, and see how nervous they get if the, uh, the US or the UK bombing, aerial bombing in those theatres of war, got too close to their own positions. We also need to remember, of course, that in Ukraine, Ukrainian forces buried equipment, tanks, 
amongst civilian areas. We should also remember, of course, that all the NATO troops that are in Ukraine, some of whom are a small minority are on the front line, but most of the uh, NATO forces in Ukraine are, of course, buried in civilian areas, in safe bunkers, where they know that the Russians won't attack them. So the hypocrisy which underlines the situation, uh, this man just doesn't get to grips with any of it. And uh, perhaps I can emphasize this by moving on to the next slide. This is an email that I got from a gentleman. He said this, hi, you may be interested in this organization, Jewish Voice for Peace. I experienced the London Blitz in its various forms and then conscripted into the Royal Navy. I'm therefore very much against war. And now, since they abstain from the UN motion for a ceasefire in Gaza, consider our government to be murderers. Kind regards, Raymond. Well, what an amazing gentleman. I uh, got back to him and he answered me by saying that he was close to his 95th birthday. And if he remembers correctly, he was called up in September 1946. He then tells me about his uh, military experience. But he ends by saying something which I think is very astute. Regarding Hamas, if we use our fascist government's logic, we would have called the French resistance in World War II terrorist. And of course, that's absolutely true because the resistance were hated by many of the civilians because they dared take the fight to the German and the retribution was on the civilian population. But uh, let's move on. This is the organization that he uh, mentioned, No More Grieving Families in Palestine and Israel. And I find it remarkable, but perhaps not so surprising, that we're not seeing any of the Jewish voices calling for peace appearing in our mainstream uh, media. Now, let's go back a little bit, because in 2017, uh, the UK column was warning that very unpleasant things were going on with our own politicians. And uh, here's the headline attributed to Ga Gavin Williamson. Uh, British ISIS fighters should be hunted down and killed. So this is the sort of mindset of British politicians. We can follow it up. We've got Max Hill QC, government appointed independent reviewer of terrorism legislation. We've got to make sure that as they splinter and they disperse across Iraq and Syria, we continue to hunt them down. But of course, there's no, uh, there's no real comment on the background as to how these uh, people and their views have been created by what uh, Western nations have been doing in many areas of the world for many years. So we'll just put his face on the screen again. Here's young Gavin. Um, but basically, kill them all. And he's not going to be caring uh, who's been starting the wars and grooming and paying for the killers. And if we can emphasize this point, and we're UK column here, December 2017, here's the Telegraph headline, Libyan terror suspect put in charge of guarding David Cameron in 2011 Tripoli visit. So the sheer hypocrisy of uh, people ramping up war in Libya using terrorists for their own protection when it suited them. And I think the UK column, as always, was absolutely on the button with this uh, uh, slide from uh, December 2017, UK government funding terrorism. And I'll just end with, uh, if it's not the UK government, then of course we've seen many of the figures across the, U the senior European parliamentary system um, calling uh, for the war against Russia, 
And of course, that war is still going on. Let's have a little listen to Neil Oliver, who really said something which struck a chord with me. Dreadful things keep happening because dreadful people are in charge of the world, but face no consequences for their dreadful actions. Since 9-11 and the beginning of the forever war on terror, millions of civilians have been killed in a blood-drenched swathe of territory in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, Yemen and many more places besides. Always we're told it's for the greater good, that we must accept the collateral deaths of the innocent as well as the guilty. Always it's civilians that die in the greatest numbers, like grass harvested or trampled underfoot. Modern wars are prosecuted to keep the powerful in power and to make the rich richer. Provoked or not, the answer is always war. As often as not, they're about oil. The removal of inconvenient, uncooperative regimes and the replacement with those deemed compliant. The rich and powerful insist they act only to make the world a better, safer place. Is that right? All I see are piles of corpses, heaps of rubble and a world made more dangerous every day for the likes of you and me. So that was the, that was the first clip. Uh, let's listen to the second clip and see what he has to say. I say again that dreadful things keep happening because dreadful people are in charge and suffer no consequences. I also say those dreadful people are invariably cowards, which partly explains why they do those dreadful things, or at least stand by while dreadful events unfold. Cowards are easy to spot, just as dreadful people are easy to spot, just as weak people are easy to spot, for they'll sacrifice actively or passively anyone and everyone they perceive as a threat to their position and burgeoning wealth. And so French Macron, Canadian Trudeau and Kiwi Ardern and more besides keep stepping backwards while simultaneously nudging their populations forwards into harm's way. Another British former Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, locked down the country in lockstep with all the rest, leading to death and economic destruction on an unmeasured scale and pushed medical products that were questionably neither safe nor effective, not even in terms of Big Pharma's own self-regulating policies, on millions of people, children included. It was the NATO bag carrier who scuppered hopes of an early peace deal in Ukraine. I couldn't have put it better. Of course, I've only taken two small clips um, out of his uh, overall piece to camera. But to me, he is identifying exactly the cause of the problem, which is the people we have in power. And uh, all credit to him for mentioning Boris Johnson, because, of course, Boris Johnson, who, as he said, was one of the key figures that in that destroyed the peace talks and allowed the conflict in Ukraine to go on. Boris Johnson is now going to become one of the presenters of GB News. So I think that piece has taken huge courage by Neil Oliver and uh, as many people as possible should listen to, uh, watch and listen to what he has to say. Okay, so last week we were reporting on the four uh, Security Council resolutions of the United Nations Security Council that failed because of vetoes. Uh, and so on. Well, the UN General Assembly has decided that they're not happy with that situation and they have gone ahead and adopted a major resolution on Gaza uh, calling for an immediate, durable, as a quote, immediate, durable and sustained humanitarian truce leading to a cessation of host hostilities. So a ceasefire, in other words. Uh, so this is, uh, uh, the, sorry, the resolution then talks about the protection of civilians, uh, upholding legal humanitarian obligations, uh, they have also demanded that all parties immediately and fully comply with obligations under international humanitarian and human rights laws, 
particularly in regards to the protection of civilians and civilian objects. Uh, they've also called for the protection of humanitarian personnel uh, and the ability for essential supplies and services to reach all civilians in the Gaza Strip. Uh, and they've also, uh, in the resolution, called for uh, the rescinding of the order by Israel, which they describe, this resolution describes as the occupying power. Uh, so they want the rescinding of the order by Israel for Palestinian civilians, UN staff, and humanitarian workers to evacuate all areas in the Gaza Strip north of the Wadi Gaza and relocate to the south. And they also called for the immediate and unconditional release of all civilians being, as they described it, illegally held captive, uh, demanding their safety, well-being, and humans, uh, uh, human, sorry, humanitarian treatment in, uh, in compliance with international law. So that's uh, uh, something from the United Nations, at least. That was a pretty clear vote uh, from the General Assembly, which, of course, as much as every country in the world, uh, rather than the uh, limited, limited members of the Security Council. Um, but in the meantime, uh, Vladimir Putin has been busy. Uh, he was be been meeting in the Kremlin with uh, eight top Russian religious leaders, uh, all representing various uh, religious groups, uh, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, and Buddhist faiths. Uh, and he was using this uh, opportunity to denounce uh, what he was describing as the clash of civilizations policy, which is being implemented at the moment. So let's just have a look at uh, some of the things that he was saying. Uh, I'd like to offer my sincere condolences to the families of Israelis and citizens of other countries whose loved ones died or were wounded in the October 7th attack. Uh, but it is likewise clear to us that innocent people should not be held accountable for crimes committed by others. Uh, the fight against terrorism cannot be conducted on the notorious principle of collective responsibility resulting in the deaths of elderly people, women, children, entire families. Uh, we see attempts made by certain forces to incite further escalation through dragging other countries and nations into the conflict and using them for their own selfish, selfish interests. He's talking about the West here. Uh, in my view, these actions are clearly designed to sow instability around the world, to divide cultures, peoples, and world religions, and provoke a clash of civilizations. Uh, meanwhile, they keep talking about an obscure rules-based order, which in reality is essentially the same hypocrisy, double standards, claims of exceptionalism and global dominance of preservation of what is essentially a neo-colonialist system. Uh, he said a lot more in that particular presentation uh, before inviting comment by the faith leaders. And I strongly recommend uh, that it'll be in the, the link will be in the show notes uh, under this program. I strongly recommend everybody reads the full, uh, the full discussion. Okay. I think that uh, takes us on to Mark. Yes, Mark. So uh, let's have a look at uh, what's going on with journalism. <laughs> Not very good stuff, gentlemen. Uh, our friends at Associated Press, who are all over the place correcting us with their fact-checking brigades, uh, always on the... Uh, on the offensive in that regard. If we if we talk about elections not looking honest, well, we're wrong. If we talk about all sorts of other matters, well, the naysayers, the people that ask questions are the problem. You just need to stick with the establishment line. That's the AP's line. Anyway, this same Associated Press is now announcing a sweeping democracy, democracy in a republic, journalism initiative. The Associated Press announced, and now this was late last year, we need to be a little retroactive to get context. They announced it will inject additional resources into covering democracy in the U.S. with the goal of helping an increasingly polarized public better understand their government. 
the polarized public is code for people not trusting the mainstream news anymore and therefore not trusting everything the government says. Um, and here's the key with Philan with philanthropic support from several organizations, very important, Associated Press aims to improve civic literacy and combat misinformation. How many times have we heard this? By bolstering the explanatory journalism and providing information and tools to local newsrooms to aid in their coverage. AP will also deepen its reporting on the impact of elections and election-related policy on communities of color. No bias there. <clears throat> anyway, moving on from there, this effort, this overall effort, and this is where we get into the nitty-gritty, is supported by the Lilly Endowment Incorporated, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, and the less radical but still notable Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, based here in Michigan, by the way. And it's focused on providing solution-based journalism, we're told, rather than merely highlighting problems and covering extreme voices. Uh, with a reporter in every state house, the Associated Press, we're hearing a quote here, is uniquely positioned to cover democracy in the U.S. and amplify and uh, amplify the ideas and issues that connect people, according to the AP Senior Vice President and Executive Editor Julia Pace, or Julie Pace, rather. Not only have we covered elections across the country since 1848, but we, Associated Press, listen to this, we have tallied votes and declared election winners for the better part of two centuries. The investment to ramp up our, po our portfolio builds on AP's extraordinary role in the American democracy. Now that's very interesting because the national press pool has been accused, including AP, has been accused of skewing election results in conjunction with uh, computerized voting and computerized vote counting that is increasingly seen by many as untrustworthy. And I've got a video interview coming up soon on UK column of, Gar of Garland Favrito of VoterGA.org that will explain the actual uh, anatomy of election insecurity and election theft, how it can and does happen. That'll be coming up soon on, on UK column. Anyway, let's look a little bit more deeply momentarily at the company that the Associated Press keeps in this initiative. The Lilly Endowment, based in Indianapolis, is a private philanthropy created in 1937 by three Lilly family members via gifts from their stock from their big pharma business, Eli Lilly and Company. Founded in 1876, Eli Lilly, the big pharma company, has offices in 18 countries and sells its products in 125. It was the first company to mass produce the polio vaccine as well as insulin. And here's some more important notes. In January of 2009, the largest criminal fine in U.S. history, totaling $1.415 was imposed on Eli Lilly for illegally marketing uh, its best-selling drug, the antipsychotic Zyprexa. Not to be outdone, of course, that same year, Pfizer agreed to pay a civil criminal record fine of $2.8 billion for the illegal marketing of the painkiller Bextra. And that was the largest healthcare fraud fine in the history of the U.S. Department of Justice. Lilly also has applied for approval, by the way, of its monoclonal antibody treatment for COVID-19. So Big Pharma is getting involved in the Associated Press crusade. Moving on a little bit more, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation supports journalists, authors, and filmmakers 
InfluenceWatch.org notes that the Logan Foundation's grant recipients include left of center nonprofit journalism entities, including Report for America. The grantees, those that receive the money, also include the First Amendment Coalition, whose, pers- whose perspective is clearly left wing. And the William and Flora Hewitt Foundation apparently has the same general orientation, with the Hewlett Foundation having created a racial justice advisory council. And I'll conclude by noting that uh, in this next slide, the Hewlett Foundation, we're branching off from AP now, it's joined Press Forward, a national effort to award more than $500 million to revitalize local news. We've heard similar things in Great Britain. We've heard similar things in Canada. Local news is suffering. There's news deserts out there. People are becoming more vulnerable to misinformation. Oh, my God, what are we going to do? Well, we need to get more of the mainstream journalistic syndicate kind of news uh, through foundation money. We need to get it into those local communities. And I'll mention here in this in this uh, uh, last slide, a coalition of 22 donors, including the William and Flora Hewitt Foundation, announced Press Forward, a national initiative to strengthen communities and democracy by supporting local news and information uh, with an infusion of more than a half a billion dollars over the next five years. And I'm, I'm going to uh, go off to something on another screen over here. Those 22 donors uh, in the Press Forward initiative include many that support the uh, Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a.k.a. PBS, roughly the equivalent of the BBC here in the United States. That includes the Henry Luce Foundation. Henry Luce was behind Time Warner and was a member of Skull and Bones. Um, We have the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, major liberal internationalists there. We have the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, very left-leaning globalist. Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, very left-leaning globalist. And, of course, not to be left out, the Carnegie Corporation of New York. They're related to, of course, the uh, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace that is Bilderberg-related. So um, these are the. This is the company that Associated Press keeps, guys, in this initiative. And so, what I'm going to conclude about this, in my opinion, is that they're scared, shitless, if I may say, that um, alternative news of the real sort is going to fill the void that is right now wide open, like a gaping wound that they're trying to fill with mainstream news. So the race is on for the narrative. Uh, Mark, thank you very much. When I saw your segment earlier this morning, I I was just amazed because it brought back into my mind UK column reporting from 2018. Uh, I think this is your content originally, Mike, where uh, we were warning about control of the media in UK. So this was the opening slide, unsustainable. Uh, But uh, picking up on Matt Hancock, the then digital minister, robust high quality journalism is important for public scrutiny scrutiny sorry and underpins democratic debate that was the claim the review will look at the sustainability of the national regional and local press and ensure that the uk is a vibrant independent and plural free press as one of the cornerstones of public debate uh, we also highlighted uh, presto here Um, an organization that I think was getting politically involved, but that was highly 
relevant to the time. Let's just move on here, though. Um, this is the key bit that dovetails with your report because it's the BBC creating a pool of more than 140 local democracy reporters to cover council and public meetings for news organisations across the UK. And uh, if I just add a bit more, um, so 144 full-time and two part-time local democracy reporters have been allocated to 58 news organisations in England, Scotland and Wales following a competitive bidding process. And we warned that this was the BBC getting its tentacles into low-level uh, reporting, and we warned of the dangers of that. Um, but uh, basically, we had this comment uh, from the controller. This is a major advance in the partnership, which will significantly improve the reporting of council, sorry, on councils and public institutions, leading to greater public accountability accountability for our local politicians. That was the claim. Um, the groundbreaking local news partnership between the News Media Association and the BBC is now becoming a reality which will benefit the BBC local media and most important local communities. Uh, the initiative has moved the whole relationship between the BBC and the local media sector from confrontation to collaboration. That is the dangerous word. The BBC is now in collaboration producing local news and key benefits will include 150 new journalists on the ground holding public institutions uh, to account for their needs. Uh, so we, we popped up um, uh, this from uh, the Twitter page, but let's move on to the key bit here where we put a network together of the BBC uh, teaching fact from fiction. This is the BBC saying it's going to teach people how to report and to identify the truth. Uh, this needed to happen at the time because you might be bamboozled by Brexit. So the BBC was setting itself up as guardian of its own truth uh, with a propaganda arm now entwined in local media reporting. And so we pointed out they'd uh, invested eight million into this. Uh, local news partnership scheme had got 700 media organisations signed up. There was a shared data unit based at BBC Birmingham. Uh, this is all part of the collaboration and the pool of 144 full and part-time democracy reporters, as we previously mentioned. So they share their stories back into the system and uh, 24 contracts to employ 55 titles for Trinity Mirror. And lastly, news organisations, radio stations, online media companies and established re regional newspaper groups will receive funding from the BBC for the employment costs of reporters. And we labelled that overall the BBC tightening the noose around the neck of independent news reporting. And we also warned with this that, of course, uh, the BBC's reporting riddled with applied behavioural psychology in line with the UK government's nudging uh, initiative. So this was very dangerous in our opinion. And I think what we're actually seeing uh, Mark, is, is a parallel now emerging in the United States. If you're losing the media battle, you've got to get in and control every single element uh, at high level and low level. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, you'd be very welcome as a member. Your membership much needed and appreciated. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK Column shop, and I'm delighted to say the MHRA 
not fit for purpose t-shirts have literally arrived through the door this morning. Uh, uh, but you could also pick up a membership voucher, maybe as a Chris Christmas gift if you wanted, uh, and that would be fantastic. Uh, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, ukcolumn.org and ukcolumn.extra.co.uk especially. And we just add to that that with your financial help, UK Column has made a huge uh, improvement over this year. Uh, you may not appreciate it all, but it's made a huge difference for us and how we can work. We want to continue to expand. And if you are going to help us do that, then we need more subscribers uh, to come in and effectively get involved with what we're doing. So if you're watching wherever you are in the world overseas and you're not a subscriber, do think about doing that for us because that will enable us to expand and to challenge uh, the sorts of problems in the media and the press that we've just described in the previous segment. Okay, where does that take us? Uh, Mark, uh, COVID shots. <laughs> Everybody's favorite topic, right? Uh, uh, along with uh, outright torture. Uh, yeah, here we have a picture of your friend and mine, Anthony Fauci. Does he ever go away? No. Anyway, this is from a ABC affiliate, but it's a national AP report. The affiliate's based in Maine. Updated COVID-19 shots are coming. They're part of a trio of vaccines to block fall viruses. The other is the flu vaccine and one other, not necessarily of a lot of significance. Uh, this is a little bit about it. Why more COVID-19 shots? Good question. The ever-evolving, the ever-evolving coronavirus that's convenient isn't going away. Similar to how the flu shots are updated each year, the Food and Drug Administration gave COVID-19 vaccine makers a new recipe for this fall. Well, isn't that lovely? The updated shots have a single target, an Omicron descendant named yada, yada, yada. It's a big change. The COVID-19 vaccines offered since last year are combination shots targeting the original coronavirus strain and a much earlier Omicron version, making them very outdated. Pfizer, Moderna, and Novavax all have brewed new supplies. Interesting choice of words. Um, the FDA will soon decide if each company has met safety, effectiveness, and quality standards. So far, that's been extremely lacking. Then the CDC must sign off before vaccination begins. A CDC advisory panel is set to meet soon to make recommendations how, on how to best use the latest shots. Earlier this month, European regulators authorized Pfizer's updated vaccine for this fall for adults and children as young as six months. Hear that clearly. Now, I was talking to my brother-in-law last night in Bering Springs, Michigan, and we were going over some things we had heard, and we looked up some things online, and I kept going into the evening a bit. Um, there have been some admissions in the British health journals and by the CDC in America, uh, although very limited admissions, uh, going back about a year or two up till the present, myocarditis and pericarditis after mRNA mRNA COVID-19 vaccinations. Of course, if it's mRNA, it's not really a true vaccine, but we'll leave that aside. Um, and the CDC and the British Medical Journal and others, the National Institutes of Health, are all admitting, very tentatively, but admitting that myocarditis and pericarditis are an outcome, at times, of the COVID-19 injections. 
but they're saying very rare, uh, uh, only hundreds of cases out of millions of doses, things like that. But then there's all sorts of uh, different caveats, and they all say one thing, that more research is needed. So this is something to keep firmly in mind as they roll out more shots. And a, a really nice add-on to this is um, vaccinequiz.org. And uh, this is mainly American-based. It's based on the CDC and FDA, largely. Uh, it's 15 questions. But if you go to vaccinequiz.org, showing right here, you'll see, for example, uh, when you get when you give your answer, when you guess your answer, it'll tell you whether it's correct or incorrect, and then it'll give you data to tell you why the answer is that way. And this is question number one. Following the CDC recommended pediatric schedule, how many doses of vaccines will U.S. children receive by the age of 18? The answer, the correct answer, is more than 60. And a little bit of info on this chart, children following the CDC and prevention organization recommended schedule, their, their recommended schedule, will receive actually between 69 to 73 doses of vaccines by the age of 18. 73 doses includes the four doses recommended in utero. And uh, there's lots of info in this quiz also about aluminum and mercury in the shots. And of course, aluminum compounds have been connected to Alzheimer's. Um, and so it's entirely possible that these injections when you're young uh, turn out to be uh, a cause of Alzheimer's when you're older. Uh, that's a little bit speculative, but there, there are connections made between aluminum deposits in the brain and Alzheimer's and dementia because aluminum is not easily fleshed out of your system. But that's what's rolling out here. And that quiz is very enlightening. And I'd recommend no matter where you live to go to vaccinequiz.org and check it out. Okay. Okay. Well, let's come back to the UK then. Uh, and uh, well, a letter was uh, sent to me or uh, a screenshot of a letter was sent to me a day or two ago. And the question was, is it real? Um, so let's put it on screen. Uh, it appears to be coming from uh, Judith Paget, uh, CBE, who is uh, the Director of General Health and Social Services, NHS well, Wales. Uh, and uh, let's uh, zoom in on it and have a look and see what it says. It says, it's to all the chief executives of all NHS Wales organisations, dear colleagues, we're now more than a month uh, into the wintry respiratory vaccination programme and we've been working closely monitoring the uptake across all eligible cohorts including healthcare workers. I'm sorry to say that so far, the data for healthcare workers is very disappointing. You'll be well aware that vaccination against flu and COVID-19 is one of the best defenses we have to protect our staff and support the resilience of NHS organizations this winter. Anecdotally, we're hearing of reluctance in taking up the offer, the offer of a COVID-19 vaccine. And I'm therefore asking each of you to immediately review how the offer of vaccination is being promoted and encouraged across your organization. It is crucial that as a system, we understand the barriers to uptake and work hard to break them down. Please, could you ask that what more we could do, be doing to ensure vaccination is easily accessible and our staff feel encouraged and supported to come forward? Uh, time is not on our side. As I mentioned, we're already more than a month into the program. I would ask you to act quickly on this and we'll look forward to hearing about the interventions you've made at the next NHS Wales Leadership Board. Moreover, I look forward to seeing a significant boost in uptake numbers in the coming weeks. Thank you in advance for your support with this. Yours sincerely, 
Judith Paget. Um, so the question was, is it real? Uh, and uh, I made a media inquiry, and indeed the uh, NHS Wales media team have conf uh, confirmed that this uh, letter is real. Uh, and therefore, Judith Paget encouraging NHS leaders to really ramp up the sales campaign uh, with their staff and make sure that uh, staff are vaccinated in inverted commas as much as possible. And no mention of side effects. Of course not. No. Um, so where does that take us? Uh, that takes us to Scotland, David. Yes, and to the Scottish Child Abuse Inquiry. Um, this uh, particular part of it deals with Loretto School, the oldest um, uh, private school in Scotland, and the school that uh, many of the great and good have gone to. Um, and uh, the, the, there has been abuse here, and it's been covered by the Abuse Inquiry, at least to some extent. And this is a summary of what Lady Smith of the Scottish Child Abuse Inquiry has found. A small number of staff at Loretto abused children. Some children at Loretto engaged in abusive conduct towards other children. The abuse included sexual, physical and emotional abuse, and some children were groomed for sexual abuse. Bad enough. Um, it continues. The school's reaction to a member of staff trying to prompt the headmaster to address the bullying in 1991 was to dismiss the member and focus on protecting the school's reputation. And now I spoke last week, uh, during the last week, uh, to that uh, member, former member of staff, and uh, I hope to be recording his, his full testimony as to what exactly happened in a, in a month or two, and we'll have full details of that in due course. But the point I want to make here is the problem was highlighted the person who highlighted that the whistleblower was excluded from the school and um, the person most directly responsible for this was, of course, the headmaster at the time. It further says effective leadership was not consistently established and maintained. Um, and after this, there were some excellent examples of good leadership after 1995, um, complacency was common before 1995. So we have a, we have a major problem with the headmaster and the leadership of that school in the period before 1995. So who was that? Well, it was a Mr. Norman Drummond. He was headmaster at Loretto from 1984 to 1995. The announcement was to succeed David Murray, the governor's appointed from a very large field, the Reverend Norman Walker Drummond, a Scot aged 32. Gosh, that's young. Um, and it goes on through his education. He was in the Parachute Regiment, the Black Watch. He, uh, he got a blue in Cambridge at rugby. He um, captained the Scottish Universities and Services Rugby 15, a keen cricketer, etc. Comments, some eyebrows were raised, no doubt, at a non-schoolmaster of only 32. Um, so he, what's he doing now? You may wonder. Well, he's he's writing. He's got a book called The Spirit of Success, um, how to connect your heart to your head in work and life. So he's basically a motivational speaker. Um, he's saying from gangland, gangland areas of Glasgow and Edinburgh to a young minister to the present day as a celebrated international speaker and author, Norman Drummond's life and work embodies a personal commitment to leadership. This is the man who was criticised in the Scottish Child Abuse Inquiry. Personal commitment, uh, commitment to leadership and to developing talent in others. He's founder and chairman of 1400. More on that in a moment. He was also former BBC national governor. 
Um, so he he's all it's all about finding vocation and developing leadership, and it's all about the Columba fourteen hundred International Leadership Academy. So more on that. It contains many aspects. Um, it includes a head teacher's leadership academy. So this man who failed at Loreto to protect the children and who excluded the whistleblower when he tried to raise concerns is now leading a leadership academy for head teachers in Scotland called Columba 1400. Columba 1400 was founded by Norman Drummond. In 1988, Norman set up the Ronald Selby Wright Leadership Centre Center in Staffen on the Isle of Skye. Okay. It goes on to describe his other uh, achievements, and he created Columba 1400 to extend this concept. Now, Ronald Selby Wright Leadership Centre. That name might be familiar to some of you because that was Blair's mentor, spiritual mentor, uh, when he was at Fetus and is now known to be a prolific sexual abuser of, sexual abuser of children. He's now dead. Um, in fact, so close was the relationship between uh, Norman Drummond and uh, Mr. Selby, Ronald Selby Wright uh, that Norman Drummond gave the eulogy at his funeral. So after it all came out, they changed the name to Lumber 1400 because you couldn't call it the Ronald Selby Wright Foundation anymore. Um, this is all about values-based leadership, increasing awareness of self and as a leader of change. So it's change agents, right? You'll notice in this, there's no mention the man's meant to be a minister of, of the church. There's no mention of Christ or Christianity or anything in, in this. Um, it also talks about perseverance, identifying sources of complication, obstruction, and resistance, and developing strategies for success. I would put it to you that sources of complication, obstruction, and resistance are people like me. Um, and it goes on, Columba 1400, uh, they have leadership academies for social leaders. We act as a catalyst for deep collaboration across agencies centered around families, people, people and relationships. And the Senior Leadership Academy is working towards partnership with the Scottish Leaders Forum to bring Scotland's executive leaders together with common purpose to lead our collective efforts for COVID-19 recovery and beyond. And uh, when it comes to the head, head Teachers Leadership Academy, senior teachers are going to reconnect to their power, answers in the postcard as to what that actually means, and their desire to drive change, change agents again. They open up to reconnect to their values and build power, a powerful network to make lasting differences in education. So this is a hidden network amongst the head teachers of Scotland being organized by the man who failed at Loreto. Um, this is going to be done by transformational change, of course, unlocking values and creating action. Unlocking values. Not quite sure what that means. Does that mean changing values? I suspect it does. Uh, and building a self-sustaining community. Student teachers are going to build a powerful peer network uh, which will sustain the professional practice for life as they get ready to change the lives of Scotland's young people. All about change agents. Um, and finally, on this, the Head Teachers Leadership Academy unfortunately didn't get government funding this year. It was getting about half a million quid every year or so. Didn't get funding this year. Head teachers uh, are going to connect to their values, connect to their team, connect to their school. Um, and uh, we hope to have some money from the government to pay for all this again soon. So that's 
what we've found so far about Columba 1400, which seems to be common purpose for Scottish Thank you very much, Dave. Uh, there's a lot we could discuss on that, but we'll have to save that for another time. I'd just like to give a little update on Ukraine, because, of course, as far as the BBC is concerned, well, Ukraine has been pushed into fourth place. Why do I say that? Let's have a look at their uh, website. So this is uh, the opening page of the BBC. If you look at the top, you've got home, um, you've got uh, Israel, Gaza war, you've got cost of living, and in fourth place is Ukraine. So Ukraine now pushed into the background, and the BBC propaganda there underneath the arrow, Russia executing its own retreating soldiers, the US says. This is absolute raw propaganda. It's, it's well, I don't quite know how to describe it. It is so bad, but this is the problem. All is not going well in Ukraine. And if I just bring up another headline here, Ukraine war forced evacuations as Russian attacks intensify, just as the uh, the debate and the unhappiness over uh, the uh, aerial bombing of uh, civilians and children in Gaza, as that grows, here is the BBC weaving a story that the Ukra those nice Ukrainians are pulling civilian areas out in order to protect them from Russian attacks. But as I've mentioned earlier in this news, throughout the war, the Ukrainians have hidden military equipment, particularly tanks and armoured vehicles, amongst civilian air, uh, areas uh, in line uh, with the accusations against the works of Hamas, uh, for example. So hypocrisy by the BBC, but Ukraine is failing. And what we should remember was that back in March, uh, this was in, in the US, but also in UK and the European Union, we were all supposed to be working in order to give uh, Ukraine the artillery rounds, particularly the 155 millimeter shells that it needed. And this was uh, the EU in particular declaring that uh, we were going to get ahead and deliver. But the reality is those weapons have not been de delivered and the reports are now coming through. EU falling short on plan to supply Ukraine with ammunition. And of course, this is uh, disastrous for a failing um, uh, Ukrainian uh, war at the moment. The counteroffensive is uh, dying away by the day. Uh, but uh, basically, the Ukrainians, if we want to just treat it in black and white terms, let down. They were promised the weapons. They're not going to get them. Many, of course, are now going to be diverted for the war between Israel and uh, Gaza. But this is the sad bit um, that it takes the Kiev Independent here to report on what it describes as soldiers burnt out from the horrors of war. This is what always happens from major conflicts. Uh, men and women who've been involved suffering trauma, uh, often major for the rest of their lives. But the BBC utterly silent as these brutal Ukrainian casualties rise. The counteroffensive has failed and the new Russian advances across the front are causing even more casualties for the Ukrainians. But for the BBC, it's an old war. They've pushed it into fourth place. The BBC is much happier with the fresh bloodshed they've got of children in Gaza and Israel. 
Um, Mark, uh, what's uh, I know Ursula von der Leyen is uh, on her way around the Balkans at the moment. Several Balkan countries in the next, well, it began yesterday and for the next couple of days. Uh, it's debatable about whether that's expansion of the EU or whether it's uh, expansion of the war. But anyway, we can talk about that maybe on Wednesday. Uh, but you have, uh, well, she's been given an award, it seems. Yeah, she's stopping over in Chicago, about two hours west of where I'm at on the other side of the lake. Uh, for the awards dinner tonight of our friends at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, the former Chicago Council on Foreign Relations. Um, she is uh, going to be honored there along with the U, uh, UL uh, Solutions president and CEO Jennifer Scanlon, I believe her name is, if I'm saying that right. And at any rate, a little bit about Ursula. Uh, of course, uh, she was proposed by the European Council as the candidate for president of the European Commission on the 2nd of July, 2019. She was then elected by the European Parliament 16 July. She took office uh, the 1st of December in 2019. Uh, she was included in Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People of 2020 and again in 2022. And get this, she was named the most powerful woman in the world by Forbes Magazine in 2022. Uh, it's just a footnote that she's a uh, made her way over stateside, and she'll be ad addressing that illustrious, gr illustrious group this evening. I wanted to try and attend. I actually got an invitation because I was on an emailing list from a long time ago. Until I found out it was $1,000 a plate, I was all fired up. But uh, I'm holding off for, for now, and I'll see if I can get a transcript or some video clips. Uh, well, uh, and I mean, as far as I know, she's still in the Balkans, so I guess that's going to be a video uh, link but uh, but we'll, we we shall see. Oh. But it, you could be you could be right. But uh, all of her Twitter well, that, feed today was was her visit to the Balkans. So so we'll see we'll see what uh, <laughs> what she's doing there. But look, Mark, we're we're out of time. So let's just uh, move over to David then uh, and finish David with uh, Hamza Yusuf. Yes, we we need to finish with something that's a bit lighter today. Um, so uh, the end wokeness Twitter account tweeted out. Uh, copy of Hamza's infamous Whitey speech that we've covered before. Um, I'm pointing out that this is, uh, he openly despises white people. And Elon Musk, uh, none other, uh, saw this and uh, responded, what a blatant racist. Um, so uh, just to remind people who maybe haven't seen or haven't recently seen the, the speech, we have a little clip. And to my colleagues on the government bench, we know that we are not immune either. Some people were surprised. They were taken aback even by the mention on my social media that 99% of the meetings I go to, I'm the only non-white person in the room. But why are we so surprised when the most senior positions in Scotland are filled almost exclusively by those who are white? Take my portfolio alone. The Lord President, white. The Lord Justice Clark, white. Every High Court judge, white. The Lord Advocate, white. The Solicitor General, white. The Chief Constable, white. Every Deputy Chief Constable, white. Every Assistant Chief Constable, white. The Head of the Law Society, white. The Head of the Faculty of Advocates, white. Every Prison Governor, white. And not just Justice. The Chief Medical Officer, white. The Chief Nursing Officer, white. The Chief Veterinary Officer, white. The Chief Social Work Advisor, white. Almost every trade union in this country headed by people who are white. In the Scottish Government, every Director General is white. 
every chair of every public body is white. That is not good enough. And it, it's, it's playing to the race card, right? This is critical race theory. This is the religion he believes in. He's not a, he's not a Muslim. He pretends to be a Muslim. He believes in woke ideology, which is a religion that's trying to replace well, everything else, particularly Christianity, but anything that's in its way. This is what he believes, and, and uh, it's incoherent. It's, and it's, it's, this is why he's now running into trouble. Um, so Elon Musk called him a blatant racist. Um, he responded, uh, Hamza responded, racists foaming at the mouth at my very existence. And this is obviously completely missing the point. He, he put in a a little gif of a dancing, a dancing Asian, classical Asian shopkeeper, a BBC Scotland comedy clip. Um, he doesn't get the point. He's followed, he's gone down the path of following this false religion, critical race theory. It's completely incoherent. What he needs to do now is actually realise the mistake he's made and how damaging and catastrophic it is for our country and say sorry. He's not going to do that. So he's got to double down. And he's got to double down on, on, on this racist nonsense. Uh, so this is not going to play well. And it's just another nail in the coffin of Hamza. He lost one of his, uh, one of the people who, who competed against him for the SNP leadership, jumped ship and left the SNP this week and joined the Alba party instead. So major names in the party are leaving and uh, the whole thing's falling apart. And uh, Hamza's left there holding the pieces. It's not going well. Okay, well, we'll we'll end there. Big thank you to everybody who's uh, joined us today, wherever you are in the world. And we just like to say our position as UK Column is we want the war and the violence to stop, whether it's uh, in Israel or it's in Ukraine or it's in other areas of the world. And we're really starting to focus on the people who are fomenting that violence and controlling it. These are the people that we need to bring to account. And we certainly should be looking at our own national governments and, of course, some of the globalist bodies that are pushing the warmongering agenda. Uh, it's beholden on all of us to do it. And at the end of the day, the powerful word, word we have at our disposal is no, not in our name. We'll leave you to think about that. But thank you for joining us. Bye-bye.